of God on which we'll base our meditation this evening is found in Luke's Gospel, the 22nd chapter, beginning there with the 66th verse. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. This is God's word. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, the the chronology of exactly what happened on Thursday evening and Friday of Holy Week can be a bit confusing. Now we get the upper room, the celebration of the Passover, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the foot washing, and then the arrest. But then what happens after that can tend to get a little bit, again, confusing, hard to follow. Jesus actually had multiple trials, five of them, in fact. The mob sent from the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, bound him and led him first to Annas, where they had their first trial. Annas bound him again and sent him to Caiaphas, where he had his second trial. Caiaphas then sent him to the Roman governor, Pilate, where he had his third trial. Pilate sent him to another Roman governor, Herod, where he had his fourth trial. And then Herod sent him back to Pilate, where he again had a trial, his fifth and final. Why did they do that? Why so many? The Jews would undoubtedly answer that they wanted to do things by the book. They wanted to do things, everything the way they should. They wanted to do everything properly, legally. See, they had a, they'd created problems for themselves, hadn't they? In connection with this, this whole deal with Jesus. First, they determined that they wanted to arrest Jesus at night, even though Jesus himself said, I was with you every day in the temple. You sent a mob with clubs and swords out to get me? But they feared the people. So they decided to operate under the cover of darkness and send this mob out to arrest Jesus and they were successful. And they thereby created their first problem. It came with them easily, peacefully. He volunteered. And you could almost hear them. Aha! We've got him. Now what do we do with him? See, legally, what they were supposed to do with the prisoner is just hold him until sunrise because... Jewish law forbade a trial until after sunrise. There's no such thing allowed as a nighttime trial. So what did they do? They held a nighttime trial. Exactly what they weren't supposed to do. Why did they do that? Why did they conduct that trial at night knowing it was wrong? Wasn't it prohibited? Well, evidently not when you're trying to condemn an innocent man. The Jews had another problem. They realized that they had no evidence that they could use to convict Jesus. So 
So all they had to rely on were false witnesses that they had paid to testify against Jesus. Now they're perfectly willing to do that, but I wonder if they didn't reason, let's just haul him before, and this wasn't the whole Sanhedrin, this is just some of the, the hardcore guys that had gathered together. This was Annas, who wasn't even the high priest, by the way. He used to be. He was a former high priest, and he was the father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas. So this group is there, and they had to know that, you know, we've got those false witnesses, but that's a dicey thing, isn't it? Relying on false witnesses. Because a good prosecutor can often catch somebody in a lie. So wouldn't it be great if we could get Jesus to admit in front of us? If we could get him to slip up and say something, and then we could hear it, and we could be the witnesses. We wouldn't have to rely on those false witnesses. And you remember their aha moment. You heard one version of it this evening in the scripture readings. And the high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God. And by the way, that's the equivalent of our, do you solemnly swear the testimony about to give me the truth, whole truth, but the truth of God. So that was putting him under oath. So he puts Jesus under oath. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes, which was also illegal, by the way, and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his testimony. Ha! We've got him now, boys. But it's all legal, except the parts that aren't. Now, I, I once heard a story of, uh, from a friend who, when he was in college, had another friend who went out in April and shot an entire cooler full of pheasants. Now, it's not even close to any kind of open season for pheasants in April. But he brought him in proudly and he showed my friend, he opened the lid and showed him this cooler full of pheasants. And my friend looked in and said, hey, you shot hens. And his response was, you're not supposed to shoot any pheasants in April, so what does it matter? The guy was at least an honest poacher. He was forthright about his lawlessness. Not so with the Jews. If the Jews had poached pheasants, I have no doubt that they would have said, but we only shot rooster pheasants. You see, they want this semblance of legality. They want this veneer that everything that they're doing was all good and proper and legal. Everything by the book here. They wanted to maintain this for several reasons, partly for their own peace of mind, but also to protect themselves from, again, the mob which they feared, the Jewish people. They wanted to be able to pick and choose which of these regulations they were going to follow. On the one hand, they're trying to put an innocent man to death. On the other hand, they wanted it to appear that they were acting in accord with the law. 
that illegal nighttime trial, uh, that might be a problem. So they decide that they're going to hold another trial, and this time they waited until sunrise, and they sent him to the real high priest, and this would all be then above board. This, everything is going to be good with this one. We're going to call the whole Sanhedrin, the whole Jewish ruling council, so everyone will be there. They just dotted their I's and crossed their T's. We want this to be proper. Sort of. Everything was going to be legal and above board. Oh, and they would beat this innocent man barbarically, but at a legally called trial. This preoccupation with the appearance of legality also explains what comes next. The Jews lead Jesus off to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Why would they do that? The Jews despised the Romans. They resented Roman rule over them. Why would they then take a Jewish man whom they had charged with breaking a Jewish law or laws and take him to a Roman governor? Pilate had the same question. You also heard that in our scripture reading this evening. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Which didn't answer their question, but in a sense, the implication is, well, you can know he's a bad guy, or we wouldn't have stooped to bringing him to you, Roman governor. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So they'd already determined the sentence. They'd already determined that he was guilty. But the semblance of legality, the, the facade of propriety, meant that they would take them to the Romans. So now they were binding themselves even to Roman law because their law did prevent, did allow for them to put people to death for a whole wide range of things. The law of Moses called for the death penalty for things like a disobedient son and adultery and let alone murder and things like that. So now they're quoting Roman law to the Roman governor, all legal, all above board. By the way, I think there's something else at work here. It, it seems that the Jewish leaders were not only maintaining that semblance of legality, they were covering themselves. Remember, they were terrified of the mob because they knew that mob can turn on anyone. And so if that mob later came to them, or even during this trial, they didn't know how it was going to work out, and objected, or after the fact complained to them that they had killed the Messiah, they could now say, we didn't do it. The Romans did it. Those bad Romans, they're the ones that killed Jesus. It was their trial. We just took him there and asked them to judge it for us. They're still making the same claim today, by the way, aren't they? There was that dust-up in connection with that Jesus movie where some actor, I don't even remember who it was, said publicly that the Jews had killed the Messiah. 
and they blamed it on the Romans, which is convenient because though there's lots of Jews running around, there aren't that many Romans running around today from which we could demand reparations. Pilate quickly figures out that the Jews had brought him an innocent man. He wants nothing to do with him. And then to his relief, he figures out, somebody says the guy's from Nazareth, up in Galilee. So he's not even in my jurisdiction. Oh, a way out. So he sends him to Herod, the other governor, the governor of Galilee. And Herod is going to do it by the book. So he questions him, finds no fault in him, and beats him mercilessly, slapping, spitting, the crown of thorns, all the, the purple robe, all of the degradation. I find no fault in this man. Therefore, again, the semblance of, of legality, but evil within. That facade just masked the evil that was just below the surface. So Herod sends them back to Pilate for his fifth and final trial. Pilate, again, craving that semblance of legality, not only sentences a man he knows to be innocent to death, he sentences him to that form of death, of execution, reserved for the worst criminals. The, the, the worst, which again is puzzling. Okay, I know this guy is innocent, and I want to let him go, but I'm going to listen to the crowd, and I'm not only going to sentence him to death, I'm going to sentence him to crucifixion. But then he's going to cover himself, because he literally and symbolically washes his hands publicly of the whole thing. I am not responsible for what I just did. I'm not responsible. This entire day, from the arrest until the crucifixion, is just filled with this same nonsensical semblance of reality, of legality. It's, we are going to do something the likes of which has never been done. We're going to murder the very Son of God, but we're not going to go into the high priest's courtyard or to the Pilate's courtyard because he's a Gentile. That would make us ceremonially unclean. And we want to be able to celebrate the Passover tomorrow as we're supposed to. Everything by the book. Everything proper. Do you realize the bitter, egg, the bitter irony with that? These men wanted to celebrate their family Passover. And they had to, if they were keeping that Passover, which we assume they were, they had to kill their own family sacrificial lamb. At the same time, they were doing everything in their power to kill the Lamb of God. But we're going to do this so that we can celebrate this. It just reminds me of, of when Jesus was so frustrated by the Jews, and he said, you Search the scriptures, because and then you may think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. 
As I mentioned, the high priest wasn't supposed to rend his garments for whatever reason that was forbidden him. They were using their bad conduct, they were hiding that bad conduct with that facade of propriety. That's the Jews. That's the Romans. That's what they did on Thursday night and Friday. Is that why we're here? Is that what Lent is about? A special time to expose the sins of others? To dwell on how bad others are and how they wronged our Savior? If that were true, that would make us as pathetic as that Pharisee in the temple. Do you remember? Lord, I thank thee that I am not as others, not like other men, especially like this tax collector. If that's what we allow it to be, we would be just like that. True Christianity is not about examining the sins of others and condemning them and making ourselves feel superior. So what is this all about for us? What are we supposed to learn here? What we're supposed to do as Christians is, yeah, we read in God's word what people did wrong, but that's supposed to teach us something about ourselves. Lent is that special time when we look at the sinful actions of others in connection with the passion story, and we apply it to ourselves. It's supposed to be that mirror that causes us not to sit in arrogance over against them and how bad they are, but ask ourselves, is that me? Do I have a semblance of legality? And the, the honest answer is, absolutely we do. Every single one of us. This outward appearance of propriety is so much easier, isn't it, than actual propriety? This covering ourselves with a thin veneer of righteousness is infinitely easier than being righteous with our actions. That's a part-time job, the semblance of legality, the semblance of propriety. We just do that at the right time and in the right way, and we can use that to cover all the evil that's within. And every human being does this to a certain extent. We want this public face to project to others this look at how good I am. That's not hard to do, by the way do a couple of nice things, throw it out there on your Facebook page, and voila, you are a wonderful, righteous, moral person. Good for you. We don't really want people to see inside, past that. But how foolish of us if we're fooled, if we are fooled 
by this nonsensical veneer, this outward shell of propriety. And that's what Lent is about. We look at that passion history story and we take hold of each individual part and we ask, is that me? And the answer here for me is yes. We mask our impure sexual thoughts by boldly declaring our condemnation of abortion and adultery and homosexuality. We mask any abuse of drugs or alcohol or speeding or cheating on our taxes by opposing that shameful defund the police movement and championing instead championing law and order. We mask our poverty of faithful witnessing with bold confessions of what we teach and believe to fellow Christians in a safe, positive environment. We cover all the times we've served as extremely poor examples by making sure everybody knows that time or two when we did the good, right thing. It's easy too, isn't it? It's easy to fool others. Every one of you can fool your pastor easily. But you can't fool your God. God is never fooled. God never, ever plays the fool. Obviously, there's, there's nothing wrong with doing things by the book. Jesus did everything by the book, didn't he? And that's what picks us up from the misery of our own sinfulness. That's what lifts us from that honest introspection during Lent. That Jesus, with him there was no pretense, no hypocrisy. There wasn't a veneer of righteous, he was thoroughly righteous. From the moment of conception till the day he died, he did nothing wrong. Nobody had to look at Jesus and wonder what was really going on inside there. He told everyone. He showed everyone. And that's what he carried to the cross, isn't it? Not that facade, not that veneer, not that semblance of goodness. He carried that perfect, holy life to the cross and an innocent death offered that as payment for all of the rot, the sin, the failure that is ours. So our goal during Lent, during every time of the church year, but especially now, our goal is not to try to hide or pretend with our sin. It's to take that sin, honestly confess it, lay it humbly at the foot of the cross, and then hear our dear Savior say, I paid for that sin. You are forgiven. God didn't declare us to be innocent, to be not guilty, because we fooled him 
with an outward show of piety or sinlessness. He did it because of Jesus' genuine demonstration of perfection, freely given on that cross. And God the Father has declared the sin debt of you and me, the entire world, to be paid in full. The end result is therefore that we have no need of pretense. We have no need to put on airs or to project ourselves to the world as better than we are. Christ is not magnified when we do that. He's diminished. He's disrespected. Instead of the semblance of righteousness, bring all of your sins honestly and openly to your Savior. And there be thrilled with his statement, immutable, unchangeable, unending statement of forgiveness through faith in him alone. Amen.